When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A group of friends have taken the weekend to go camping. It's May, but they've got lucky with the weather. The days have been filled with hiking and swimming, campfires and s'mores. Immersed in nature and with stunning views of forests and mountains, it really has been the perfect weekend. As Sunday morning rolls around, it's time to start packing up to head home. There's a sense of sadness that the weekend is over, but it's been a great time to recharge and make new memories. But as they start to load up the car, they feel a rumbling. And it's getting louder. Something is not right at all. Little do they know that the memories from this weekend will be etched in their minds forever. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dressed, consumed, and connected. And today, we look back at how the 1980s started off with a truly catastrophic event. This is a story of the eruption of Mount St. Helens. How do volcanoes really erupt? I'm afraid my geology knowledge is limited, but here's my best Randy Marsh, Mr. Wizard explanation. Deep in the earth, it's so hot that some rocks melt they turn into a thick-flowing substance of liquid-hot magma. The magma is lighter than the solid rock surrounding it, which causes it to rise and store in magma chambers. Eventually, pressure builds up and some of that magma pushes up through vents and fissures to the surface of the earth. Magma that has erupted out into the earth is now called lava. Volcanic activity takes place all over the earth. Some aren't as prominent, while others are incredibly explosive. Right now, there are some 1,300 potentially active volcanoes worldwide. And it may surprise you, but according to the United States Geological Survey, a government agency that tracks geological data, the U.S. actually ranks third behind Indonesia and Japan for number of historically active volcanoes. In the United States, Some of the last major volcanic events include an eruption at Lassen Peak in California in 1917. And before that, the last major volcanic eruption took place in 1912 at Novorupta on the Alaskan Peninsula. Here in Canada, even though the western part of the country technically lies along the Pacific Ring of Fire, we haven't had a volcanic eruption in over 150 years. That one took place at Lava Fork in northwestern British Columbia. Before that, you have to go back more than 2,300 years for the last big explosive eruption. So that sets the stage, but we need to situate ourselves. Mount St. Helens is about 10,000 feet tall and located in Skamania County in Washington State in the Pacific Northwest region of the United States. And as mentioned, up to 1980, Volcanic eruptions in North America were not exactly a common thing. The story of the eruption of Mount St. Helens actually begins a few months prior, 
In the months leading up to the eruption, scientists from the U.S. Geological Survey, along with some other scientists, were closely monitoring Mount St. Helens. Why the close observations? Well, after nearly a century, Mount St. Helens woke up. It has been more than 100 years since Mount St. Helens last erupted, but the mountain is still an active volcano, and it has been giving off steam for the past five years. The mountain has been hit by several moderate earthquakes since last week, and a series of minor quakes continue. Scientists believe there's a chance those quake mean an eruption is near. Over the course of two months, a lot of volcanic activity took place. The first sign of activity happened on March 16th when a series of small earthquakes were recorded. In the coming weeks, as many as 20 smaller earthquakes an hour were recorded. By the end of March, explosions started to take place with 93 just in one day. Plumes of steam and ash were starting to emit from the volcano, reaching as high as 20,000 feet in the air. But by April 22nd, eruptions had dropped from nearly one per hour to now just one per day. But just a week into May, the small eruptions resumed. During the stretch of May 7th to May 17th, more than 10,000 of these small eruptions happened. And this pushed the north flank of the mountain outward, creating a massive bulge. This is the key part to pay attention to, because most worryingly, this was a sign magma and molten material were moving up from some deep reservoirs beneath the mountain. The magma had moved up into the volcano and formed what is called a cryptodome inside Mount St. Helens. A cryptodome is the buildup of magma that forms into a dome near the surface of the volcano. It hasn't breached the surface, but is quite close, hence the mammoth bulge protruding outward. The cryptodome that had expanded more towards the north face of Mount St. Helens is moving at about the rate of six feet per day. That is not great news. As we approach May 18th, the bulge has pushed out some 450 feet. Because of the rapid movement, scientists continued their close observation of the mountain. One of these scientists was David A. Johnston, a 30-year-old volcanologist within the USGS. And he was one of the first members to show up to monitor Mount St. Helens. Johnson had studied active Alaskan volcanoes and knew the dangers of volcanic explosions as well as anyone. The bulge in the volcano was still moving, but had seemed to slow down a bit. On May 17, 1980, Johnson was set up at an observation point that was considered a safe location, but it was still a risk to be this close to something that was a potentially dangerous situation. This was an active volcano, after all. But he knew the risks. On-site monitoring was imperative and a necessary danger to understand what was happening. The USGS knew something big was going to happen, but they weren't exactly sure what or when. The work and observations of David A. Johnson and the team made it so the area would be closed off to the public. This would end up saving hundreds and even thousands of lives. Word about the active volcano had spread, and engineers and geologists, both professional and amateur, were showing up to catch a glimpse. This surrounding area is also popular for trips and hiking. On a beautiful Sunday morning, May 18, 1980, 
at 8.32 a.m., it happened. And it seemed to happen out of nowhere. Some felt the 5.1 earthquake, but Johnson could see with his own eyes the entire North Slope catastrophically exploding. A frantic message soon went out. Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it, he called out over the radio. Vancouver was the code name for home base, a tribute to George Vancouver, the English navigator that gave Mount St. Helens its name. But Vancouver never received the call. A few kilometers behind where Johnson was located was Jerry Martin. Martin was a ham radio operator and member of the Amateur Radio Emergency Service. He was there to monitor Mount St. Helens for the Washington Department of Emergency Services. He did hear the calls to Vancouver over his radio and also witnessed the eruption, which turned into an avalanche and then a massive mushroom cloud. Martin could also see that the area where Johnson was positioned would quickly be overrun with ash and rocks. Johnson was never found. But he was the first one that alerted the world that Mount St. Helens was erupting. Good evening once again, everyone. Eight people are now known dead this evening following the massive eruption of Mount St. Helens early today. That eruption has radically changed the look of the peak, destroying a large portion of it. Geologists say this is by far the strongest eruption in the latest series, and it continues tonight. According to Scientific American, the 5.1 magnitude earthquake came first, and that probably shook the bulge loose, and it proceeded to cascade down in multiple slump blocks. Slump blocks are made up of sediment and rocks. And one of those probably uncovered that built-up cryptodome, which was released from the pressure, resulting in a horizontal and vertical eruption. The horizontal eruption blew out much faster than the vertical one with a blazing heat, quote, burning anyone not protected by vehicles or fallen trees, unquote. The thermal energy released was 24 megatons. That's 16 times greater than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. And the thing is, there was no loud concussive blast noise. Those near the earthquake just heard roaring or rumbling. In one cataclysmic event, there was an earthquake, a collapse, and an eruption all at once. That cryptodome was so powerful that it actually blew off the entire north face of the mountain. The top 400 meters of the entire mountain were gone in an instant, turning it into a landslide. According to the University of Washington, this was the largest debris avalanche ever recorded. We all have that cartoon-like image of a volcano blowing its top and shooting straight upward. Mount St. Helens experienced both that and the lateral blast blowing out the side of the mountain. This is what caused even more destruction. Picture the cork blowing off a champagne bottle, but then picture another cork inside the bottle blowing out the side at the same time. If you've seen the before and after pictures of Mount St. Helens, it's pretty extraordinary. And, not surprisingly, the damage was absolutely catastrophic. Everything 80s will return after these messages. So, how damaging was the explosion of Mount St. Helens? In about five to nine minutes, it completely destroyed an area of 230 square miles. 
That's 147,000 acres. That's the size of Chicago. Any living thing within that 230 square miles was dead. The inner blast zone, which extends about 6 miles or 10 kilometers from the blast zone, was covered in dense forest and completely turned to ash. The blast was so big, it still knocked down trees over an area of about 600 square kilometers. Any of the visitors trying to escape from the fringe areas saw the sun vanish behind the ash, and rocks and ash rained down. As the debris slid down the hill, powerful eruptions blasted laterally through it, overtaking the debris avalanche, which accelerated to over 300 miles per hour. Just north of Mount St. Helens is Spirit Lake. Anyone near the lake would have seen the landslide from the eruption crash into the lake, creating a 300-foot wave. When things settled down, and because of all the debris, Spirit Lake was 200 feet higher than before the eruption. The avalanche also created fast-flowing rivers of mud called lahars. A lahar is a hotter, cold mixture of water and rock fragments that flow down into valley and stream channels. The heat from the blast turned ice and snow on the mountain into 46 billion gallons of meltwater, creating rivers of mud. These rivers can move upwards of 40 miles an hour and reach as far as 50 miles away and are actually more deadly than lava flows. Even to this day, the valley surrounding Mount St. Helens is still filled with volcanic ash sediment. And the ash fall impacted hundreds more miles. The mud flows ripped out bridges and destroyed roads and spread far enough to destroy homes. Within about 15 minutes, the ash plume that towered out of the top of Mount St. Helens reached as high as 80,000 feet. That's 15 miles or 24 kilometers. The ash plume was almost as high as three Mount Everest. The ash had risen in the sky to around twice the height that commercial airplanes fly at. Speaking of planes, a small Cessna aircraft was actually flying around Mount St. Helens at the time, trying to catch a close-up glimpse of what they thought was a stable volcano. The plane was passing over the top just as Mount St. Helens erupted, but they managed to pull away to safety. The eruption lasted for around nine hours, and in the end, 57 people were killed. Others would be rescued by helicopter. But thanks to the work of the team and David Johnson, this number could have been much higher. Mount St. Helens continued to be volatile, and his monitoring, along with the work of the rest of the team, allowed them to create a hazard warning along with a zone of restricted access. The USGS saw this as limiting the death toll to under 60 when it could have been hundreds or even thousands. How did the eruption of Mount St. Helens compare to other historic eruptions? It's a tough thing to compare, especially when looking at physical destruction and loss of life. The United States Geological Survey measures the size of an explosive eruption on a scale called the Volcanic Explosivity Index, or VEI. Think of it like a Richter scale, but for volcanoes. The scale runs from 0 to 8, 
and Mount St. Helens lands around a five on this scale. And a five or higher is classified as a very large explosive event. This is a very difficult measurement when considering past events, but the famed eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD is thought to have the same VEI rating as the Mount St. Helens eruption. The 1815 Mount Tambora eruption in Indonesia, where over 90,000 people were killed, is a 7 on that VEI scale. The 1883 eruption of Krakatoa is considered to be a 6 on this volcanic explosivity index, but the difference between a 6 and a 5 on this scale is quite significant. A 6 is considered colossal, and a 7 is super colossal. But this is a tough scale to measure the true devastation of a volcano. Some of the deadliest volcanic eruptions of the last 300 years from around the world didn't have as powerful an eruption as Mount St. Helens. The Mount St. Helens eruption, quote, has a higher VEI score than five of the deadliest eruptions in the history of mankind, unquote. When we look at the actual volume of ash and debris, there are still several bigger eruptions. The 1815 eruption of Tambora in Indonesia, considered the largest known explosive eruption in historic times, ejected somewhere between 30 to 80 times the amount of Mount St. Helens. But back in 1980, the eruption still caused a massive environmental impact. The eruption ejected 0.3 cubic miles of ash from the mountain. That's 540 million tons. It's a number hard to wrap your head around, but if you took that amount of ash and compacted it into an area the size of a football field, the top of the ash pile would reach 150 miles into the sky. That's 240 kilometers. And this all obviously caused chaos. The ash clouds were blocking out the sun, but also making any search and rescue incredibly difficult. And what's worse, there was so much ash everywhere that helicopters involved in search and rescue just blew even more of it up into the air. There was also nowhere for them to land, so rescuers had to be lowered by cable to try to save people. The rescue operations went on for two weeks, with around 70 people saved. But when the eruption happened, Towns as far as 300 miles away were forced into a state of emergency. The ash was spreading everywhere. According to the USGS, the ash spread over an area of 22,000 square miles, or 57,000 square kilometers. That's the size of Croatia. According to the Smithsonian Channel, the ash was so high and so dense that in just two weeks, it had circled the entire globe. The destruction was clearly catastrophic. It is an event that defies superlatives. One geologist said today, there is no record in geology in the last 4,000 years of anything like this happening before. The tremendous lateral blast is unprecedented. Property damage from the eruption was in the range of nearly $3.5 billion when converted for today. 68,000 acres of commercial timber were destroyed. This had a value of nearly a half billion dollars. 
That 68,000 acres is about the same size as Savannah, Georgia. That would have been enough timber to fill Central Park in New York City over 80 times. But it didn't stop with just the eruption on May 18th. Mount St. Helens continued to erupt through the summer and into the fall of 1980. This caused more pyroclastic flow. This is different from a lava flow, as a pyroclastic flow is an extremely hot mixture of ash, gas, and rock fragments. They are fast and incredibly dangerous. As they move away from a volcanic vent, a pyroclastic flow can move as fast as 10 meters per second and get as hot as 800 degrees Celsius or 1500 Fahrenheit. The smaller eruptions over the course of the year also continued to blow ash out into the air. By October of 1980, those small eruptions created a new lava dome in the crater of Mount St. Helens, and that grew to nearly 300 meters or 1,000 feet above the crater floor. For the next six years, volcanic activity continued at Mount St. Helens, but then it seemed to stop. Between 1989 and 1991, some small explosions took place, as they did in 1995 and 1998. However, in 2004, a sudden reawakening happened. After nearly two decades of relative silence, eruptions continued to happen, and they dumped lava into the crater over the next three and a half years. One interesting thing that came out of the eruption and destruction of the mountain was something pretty unexpected. Because the mountain now had a giant horseshoe-shaped crater, over the coming decades, snow and ice accumulated in it. This formed North America's youngest glacier. Over the years, life eventually returned to Mount St. Helens. What looked like a completely inhospitable environment began to change as plants and animals began to return. To quote the great 20th century philosopher Ian Malcolm, life found a way. In 1982, the U.S. Congress declared Mount St. Helens a national monument. And today, researchers continue to study the area, observing new ecosystems that have emerged over the last four decades. Scientists have been able to continue to study the dynamics of an active volcano, while also researching how ecosystems respond to cataclysmic events. But back on May 18, 1980, it was a moment that made everyone hold their breath as they observed a truly historic moment in time. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, there's plenty more where that came from. And here are some suggestions for further listening. I have an episode all about the accident at Three Mile Island in my previous episodes along with a review of 1986 that covers the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. But then I have earlier episodes covering all aspects of 1980s pop culture, including the music, toys, movies, video games, and TV shows from the decade we all know and love. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the Everything 80s podcast wherever you listen to podcasts for more great trips into the past. And if you're in a position to do so, you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com. That's the platform to get access to bonus audio content, including things like the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast. 
If you want to learn more, you can just head on over to patreon.com slash 80s. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash 80s or click on the link in the description. So that's it for me. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it. <laughs>